Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Morgana the Kissing Bandit was famous for kissing Major League Baseball pitchers uh, or famous athletes. And, and Morgana was in the Astrodome. Nolan Ryan was on the pitching mound, and the Astros were playing. So Morgana goes down to the, the very lower level and apparently jumps onto the field, runs out, kisses Nolan Ryan, and then runs back and gets back up to the the seats, but well, the police by then, they came and grabbed her and arrested her for trespassing. So Morgana calls my father and says, hey, I'm, I've been arrested for trespassing. I need some help here. Can, can you represent me? My dad goes, well, sure. My dad's defense for Morgana was, and well, let me go back a little bit. Morgana had a big set of uh, rest, if, if you want to call it. Morgana the Kissing Bandit whose real name is Morgana Roberts, once told a reporter that she got her bras custom-made by the same people who made the domes for stadiums. When she was arrested in 1985 for kissing Nolan Ryan, she called attorney Richard Haynes. This is his son, Slade. So my dad's defense for her was that her breasts were so heavy, it caused her to, to fall over onto the field. And therefore, she thought, well, I'm already on the field, why not go kiss Nolan Ryan? <laughs> and it was kind of a funny laughing stock of the, of the courthouse because they were like, oh, what kind of defense is that, Mr. Haynes? And he goes, well, that's my defense, and I'm sticking to it. And it, she was found not guilty. Because her chest was so heavy. Correct. That it, it toppled her over onto the field. Toppled her over onto the field. And I thought that was a brilliant defense. I mean, that's the thing I keep reading about these defenses that your father came up with in so many different ways and they're almost they're almost too good I mean they're just unbelievable the stuff that he would come up with right he he was very good off the fly I mean impromptu he would come up with some of the best defenses that you would never ever think of Richard Haynes better known by his nickname Racehorse Haynes is widely considered to be one of the most exceptional criminal defense lawyers the country's ever seen Here's how he described his approach. Say, you sue me because you claim my dog bit you. This is my defense. My dog doesn't bite. And second, my dog was tied up that night. Third, I don't believe you really got bit. And fourth, I don't have a dog. 
he was comfortable. He was in his own skin. He didn't try to act like a lawyer. He was just Richard Racehorse Haynes, a person talking to regular people. This is Dallas attorney Charla Aldis. She tried a case with Racehorse Haynes and says she'd never seen anything like him. He was fearless. I've tried probably over 200 cases or 250. I've lost count. But, you know, you can always smell fear on the other side if, if they're not completely comfortable in their skin and they're not comfortable in the courtroom. With Racehorse, when he walked through the doors of the courtroom, you knew that man was where he was supposed to be in life. He would own the room. A real Texas accent? Yeah, not as bad as mine, thankfully for him. But, um, yeah, he did. He was a a down-home boy. He never put on airs. And I remember one of my my favorite things, and I have stolen this from him and have done it, um, that he would say to witnesses on the stand, and it's so simple, but it was so gripping when he would do it. Let's say a Mr. Smith was testifying, and he would say, Mr. Smith, have you ever, up until this very moment, in your life. And just the way he said it, you think this is the most important question and answer of the entire trial. It was just a suspenseful way that he would would word the questions and and with the pauses where they needed to be and the anticipation and the voice tone. And it was just, it was beautiful to watch. I learned so much from just having the opportunity to try that case with him. It didn't matter if you had two pennies to rub together or a million dollars. Now, he'd like the guy with a million dollars to show up, but if he thought you were the underdog, you only had two pennies, he would still take your case and and still give you the best defense that you could get. He represented all kinds of people, some very controversial people. His job was the same no matter who it was. I can't permit myself the luxury of having it matter to me whether they're guilty or not, he said. Over and over, people told us that to watch him in the courtroom was like watching magic. He started practicing law in Texas in 1956. Back then, it was common for courtrooms to have spittoons for chewing tobacco. And the first time he tried a case, he tripped over one. The jury laughed. But he thought they also sympathized. They could see he was nervous. He won the case. The next time he went to court, he tripped over the spittoon on purpose. He won again. For two years, he kept this up until finally a judge told him to knock it off. There's nothing he wouldn't do. He once held a cattle prod against his skin. He cross-examined an empty chair on the witness stand. He debated nailing his hand to the jury box, and the only reason he didn't do it was because he couldn't be sure he wouldn't start crying. When he was asked if he considered himself the best criminal attorney in Texas, he said, it's my belief that I am, and I wonder why you restrict it to Texas. According to one judge, he was a charming little jerk. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. always come into the courtroom with the cowboy boots and and usually with a, a white cowboy hat uh, you, you see a lot of photos of him when he's exiting the courtroom he'll put that white cowboy hat out and, and 
you know, the reporters would be interviewing, and, and that was probably the, the, the biggest signature items that he would uh, have, or besides his monster-sized leather briefcase that might have one legal pad in it, but he would, he would carry that into the courthouse to make the, the jury think or the judge think, hey, he's got, all this, he's got all this paperwork in here, he's getting ready to pull it out. I mean, that, that seems like a big look to me, the white hat and the boots, but maybe in Texas, just normal. Probably in Texas, it's, it's pretty normal. Um, but for him, a lot of the younger attorneys, and, and you'll see it, they started wearing cowboy boots, and, and they would come in with cowboy hats on. Everybody wanted to be like him. Yes, they did. So I started working for Racehorse Haynes two days after I got out of high school, and I was an office helper, a private investigator, a law clerk, and an associate attorney over that period of time, and it was better education than I got in law school. Houston attorney Chris Tritico. I walked into this this scene of more than you could ever imagine, and, and the famous people walking through the door that wanted to meet Richard and hire him and hire the firm. It was it was amazing, and Richard was bigger than life, larger than life. He he was gregarious, he was, he was funny, and top of the field. Racehorse Haynes is best known for his defense of two very high-profile clients. The first was Houston plastic surgeon John Hill. In 1969, John Hill's wife, 38-year-old Joan Hill, suddenly became very ill. Her husband, John, drove her to the hospital. Joan's mother was also in the car, and... Afterwards, she would report that John was driving very slowly. She said it was almost like he didn't want to get there. He fiddled with cassette tapes and played very loud classical music. Joan Robinson Hill got sick, and John Hill, instead of taking her to one of the hospitals that he had privileges at, took her to a small hospital over off of uh, Highway 59 here in Houston, and she died of what today they would call basically toxic shock syndrome. Back in the early 70s, they didn't have a name for this. They didn't know what, they didn't know what killed her. Eventually, uh, they indicted Dr. John Hill for murdering his wife, accusing him of injecting her with uh, toxins that he, they claimed he was growing at home and killed her. Some said he was injecting the toxins into her desserts, specifically Eclairs. Racehorse Haynes was hired to represent John, Dr. John Hill in the murder trial. It was a hung jury, so John Hill went home. He lived just a few doors down from Joan's parents, Ray and Ash Robinson, who were convinced John Hill had killed their daughter. Before the case could be retried, someone knocked on the door of John Hill's mansion. He opened it and was shot and killed right there on his front steps. For the rest of uh, Ash Robinson's life, it was assumed that he had hired a hitman to kill Dr. John Hill. It was never proven, and Ash Robinson died without ever uh, answering the question, so no one ever found out. The case became the subject of a best-selling book called Blood and Money, which was made into a movie, Murder in Texas starring Farrah Fawcett and Andy Griffith. When I started at 18 years old, uh, I, one of the things I first was asked to do was deliver something over to the Hill Mansion, which was the most exciting thing 
ever ever got to do at 18 years old because I just read the book. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, I don't know, uh, I don't even know who I gave the stuff to. I was just asked to deliver something over there, and I did. And I wanted so much to ask to go in that I I, I, was, I was more professional than that. <laughs> the second client to put Resource Haynes on the national map was billionaire T. Colin Davis. Having a billion dollars in the 70s was a whole, whole lot of money, and he spent it freely. Colin Davis was in the middle of a messy divorce from his wife, Priscilla, who was said to be having an affair. One night, someone broke into their house and shot Priscilla, the man she was having an affair with, and Priscilla's 12-year-old daughter. Priscilla survived and told the police everything. Her husband, Cullen Davis, was charged with capital murder. There was a lot of evidence against him. Two witnesses placed him at the scene of the crime with a gun. Racehorse Haynes had a plan. He focused on discrediting Priscilla. He described her as promiscuous, the queen bee of sex parties, a frequent drug user. He showed a poster-sized photograph of her with one of her boyfriends, a guy wearing nothing but a Christmas stocking. One reporter said Racehorse Haynes made her out to be totally unreliable, a, quote, wanton floozy whose testimony wasn't worth the time it took to hear it. He was heavily criticized in the press for his approach. The prosecutor said Racehorse Haynes came at Priscilla Davis like a ball of butcher knives. But it worked. It was a hung jury. And that was in Fort Worth, Tried it again, I believe, in Amarillo, Texas, on a change of venue and got a not guilty on the case. Then, as they were wrapping up the divorce, Cullen was accused of making a threat to the judge. Cullen Davis was frustrated that his divorce was taking so long. He thought he was being asked to pay too much alimony, and he was suspected of hiring a hitman to kill the judge. The hitman went to the FBI, and the FBI actually got the judge to cover himself in fake blood and get into the trunk of a car to pose for photographs, which were then shown to Colin Davis, suggesting that the hit he'd ordered had been carried out and that the judge was dead. Cullen apparently, or is alleged to have paid the money to the hitman they arrested him for attempted capital murder of the judge, Richard tried that case and got an acquittal of that on that case. Somehow, in spite of so much evidence, Racehorse Haynes made Cullen Davis a sympathetic character. He said the FBI had botched the investigation. He told the jury, if they worked for you, you'd fire them. Come to think of it, they do work for you. Probably some of the best criminal defense work you'll ever see was winning that case. The pictures of this judge uh, pretending to be dead in that trunk are as graphic as you'll ever see, even though he wasn't dead. certainly looked that way. Really good piece of work uh, in that case. Um, And those two cases, back-to-back over, of course, several years in the 70s, put Richard at the very, very top of the criminal defense uh, field in the United States. These are are probably his best-known cases. Those are his best-known cases, but in my opinion, not his best work. There is a case in Texas called Pam Fielder, Fielder versus State. Pam Fielder was married to a doctor in Texas. 
and he liked S&M type stuff. And he would take uh, Pam down to what we called the dungeon uh, in their in their house and and torture her and, and have her torture him, um, drive nails through private parts of his body, drive nails through private parts of her body, all the, some of the worst stuff you've ever seen. Pam Fielder said she had initially consented to what she called bondage and discipline games with her husband. But it escalated, and she didn't want to do it anymore. She said her husband drugged her with Demerol to force her to participate. In July of 1981, Pam Fielder shot her husband, firing seven rounds with a 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol. He walked through the door one day. She expected that he would torture her, and she pulled a gun out and shot him. But he had not said on this day that he was going to take her to the dungeon. She just thought he would. Racehorse Haynes argued that the abuse she had suffered had to be taken into consideration. He himself had established what's called battered woman syndrome as a legitimate defense in Texas the year before. And so Haynes put on over 350 photographs or different implements of sexual torture that they had, we had recovered from the house and tried to call an expert to testify that her state of mind at the time that she killed him was that she was going to get injured and she had no choice but to kill him. The judge refused to allow that jury charge. Pam Fielder was convicted. But on appeal in 1988, the conviction was reversed. On appeal, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals for the first time recognized the battered woman's defense in Texas, and it is now a statute in Texas. And it was Racehorse Haynes' ingenuity, inventiveness, and his belief in the system that a woman ought to be able to put on evidence of that she's been battered that created that law in Texas that still stands today. And that, in my opinion, is the best work he's ever done. Racehorse Haynes liked to tell a story about this case, about an elderly lady who came to the courthouse every single day to watch the trial, even though she had no relationship to any of the parties. Finally, a reporter asked her what she was doing there, and she replied, Are you kidding? We've got whips and chains and racehorse hands. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Support for Criminal comes from Factor. After a long day at work, sometimes the most convenient dinner option is ordering takeout. But if you make a habit of it, it can get pricey. Factor offers restaurant-quality, ready-to-eat meals delivered right to your doorstep. Factor's meals are both nutritious and tasty, and you can choose from more than 35 different options weekly. They have a variety of meal types to fit your needs, too, like keto, calorie-smart, vegan, and veggie, and more, with plenty of delicious add-ons also. 
I've tried Factor meals myself. Lately, I've enjoyed their shredded chicken taco bowl and Thai roasted vegetable green curry. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. You can also pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Head to factormeals.com slash Phoebe50 and use code Phoebe50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code Phoebe50 at factormeals.com slash Phoebe50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. When you do the work that he did, John Hill, then Cullen Davis, and then, like I said, the Pam Fielder case, and all of those things. And then you get talked about when Richard Nixon is having his problems. They were talking about hiring racehorse Haynes. When Manuel Noriega gets kidnapped out of Panama, and Manuel Noriega calls racehorse Haynes, and that's on the news. And everyone wants to hire racehorse Haynes, and you're in the news all the time by the highest profile people in the country for years. It's, it's, uh, I've never seen anything like it, and, I, and we will never see another lawyer like that. I remember like yesterday, because it, it was a big deal, him coming to Sherman. The population is about 30,000, the entire county probably 100,000. So you heard people talking about it, Racehorse Haynes is coming to town, Racehorse Haynes is coming to town. And I was really excited about meeting him. And it's right when the new Volkswagen Beetles had come out. And I bought a red one. I'll never forget it. And it was delivered to me while we were in the middle of trial. And I said, Race, come out. you got to see my car. Watch this. Watch this. And I hit the button to show how the doors automatically unlocked. And he was driving about a 30-year-old Suburban, all beat up and everything, and had cowboy boots on. He said, hey, Charlo, watch this. He went over and kicked the front tire. He said, dang it, just a second. And he kicked it again. And he said, damn it, usually when I do that, the doors open. <laughs> it was just so, that was, that was so typical of him. He was so humble, um, but so relatable. Was he, was he ever just quiet and contemplative? Or was he always up to a, to a trick, to an antic? What was interesting is the racehorse that I saw in trial and in public and the racehorse that I observed during the night when we're getting ready for the next day. And, and they were totally different people. Some of the, there was quite a few lawyers on the team and everybody was, you know, working around the clock and, and talking and everything. I would watch race though. He would go to a private area by himself and would read every single piece of paper that he needed to read for the next day. He was always so very prepared. So he didn't go just on his God-given talent. Uh, he was very, very prepared every day. Will you describe what he was like in the courtroom? In the courtroom, the, the thing that, that, that distinguished Richard from, from lawyers that from every lawyer I've ever seen, is he was always a gentleman. He had a command uh, of the language and, and, and an ability to keep control over his own emotions better than most people I have ever seen in my life. In a murder trial we were trying when I was a young lawyer, uh, a, a horrible murder case, and Richard has a, a kid on the stand who's an eyewitness to the murder and had told a lie while on direct and Richard caught it. I didn't catch it. I don't think anybody in the courtroom caught it, but Richard did. 
And he started asking this young man questions. And he goes, he asked him questions for about an hour and a half. And he was slowly asking, he'd ask a question and he would ask a question, the same question, but with a slightly different slice of the question. And he went on for an hour and a half this way in a big, long, round circle, slicing, 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 slicing. The whole courtroom is thinking, what the hell is this guy doing? Until he got all the way around that circle and he asked that last question. He sliced it one more time, asked that last question, and the kid rocked back in his chair and he took his glasses off. And Richard said, I got you, didn't I? And the kid said, yes, sir, you did. And he said, I got you, young man, because you're taking liberties with the truth, aren't you? And the prosecutor objected right as the young man said, yes, I am. <laughs> it was the most brilliant cross-examination I've ever seen. And nobody got that that kid had lied until Richard finished that hour and a half circle. And that's the way he handled everything. He never raised his voice to this kid. He baited him along until he had him so boxed in that when it finally dawned on the kid what he had done to him, he just rocked back in his chair and realized he had been caught. It was, it was brilliant. And very few lawyers have the patience to wait that long to box somebody in. And that's what Richard did every time. We used to have a joke about this, but if he could reuse staples, he would reuse them. Uh, if, he, if he saw paper clips in the trash when he'd walk around his office, he would, he would yell at the associates saying, what are you doing? That's a penny sitting there in that trash basket. You know, even when it came to going to lunch, you know, one of his favorite lunches, and, and I would joke him about it, so he would go to Jack in a Box and get the two tacos for 99 cents. And I was like, Dad, you know, that's, that's got to be the absolutely worst lunch you could possibly have. Well, he didn't care. He loved his tacos. And what about your mother? How did he meet your mother? They met uh, their high school sweethearts, uh, and at the end they were married for 62 years. When it was time for Racehorse Haynes to retire, his wife Naomi went to Chris Tritico's office and asked for his help. She said, I, Richard cannot work anymore. I need you to take over the practice and close it down and take over the remaining cases. And I said, is Richard okay with this? And she said, he will be. The work seemed to be so important to him. Well, it was, um, he... Richard understood what he had done and what he was. And, and he, I don't think that he knew anything else to be, and which is why, I'm, unfortunately, he worked until we, we just had to drag him out of the courtroom. Uh, I don't think he knew what to do with himself. Racehorse Haynes died April 28, 2017, in Trinity, Texas, shortly after celebrating his 90th birthday. He practiced law for more than 50 years. Richard believed uh, deeply in, in what he was doing in the courtroom, and, and he, he believed it um, so much that he gave up a big part of his life. And, and I'll give you a classic story about that. Um, one night, one, one time we were in trial on, on the murder case I was telling you about. My wife was due to have our second child, and literally due any minute. And this was at a time before cell phones were, had, been, had come out. I um, approached the judge, and I said, my wife's due to have a baby any minute. And I gave the number to the coordinator, and if I need to leave, she's just going to come get me, and I'm just going to get up and walk out. And he said, no problem. You don't have to say anything. I'll understand. Just leave. And I sat down. 
at council table and Richard turned around and he said, you know, when my last child was born, uh, I was in a trial and I didn't leave until after final argument and I missed the birth. Before he passed, he told me one time that, that one of his great regrets was that he didn't spend as much time as I did with my kids as he, and he wished he had. And it was the biggest compliment that he could have ever given me was that, um, that he appreciated what I had done with my kids and, um, and that he wished he had. And I, I, I took that as the greatest compliment he ever gave me. There's an old profile in the Abilene Reporter News called Arrogant Reputation Doesn't Bother Racehorse Haynes. It ends with him saying, I guess the bottom line is who you yourself would hire if you were in trouble. If I was in trouble, I'd hire me. Produced by Lauren Spore, Nadia Wilson, and me. Audio mixed by Rob Byers. Julian Alexander makes original illustrations for each episode of Criminal. You can see them at thisiscriminal.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Criminal Show. Criminal is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best podcasts around. Shows like the Kitchen Sisters present. They have a wonderful new series called The Keepers, stories of activist archivists, rogue librarians, and historians. Every art form has their standards that they've placed in the canon. Mathematics, science, everybody has their greats, and somebody placed them there. People in the visual art world say, hey, okay, this is what's going in the Louvre. This is it. And I think hip-hop needs the same thing. This is the archive. Go listen and learn more at kitchensisters.org. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. Radio Tokyo. 